it's actually crazy idea that uh, when I first presented it, of course, people are looking at me like, you're going to do what? I get AARP mail. I don't know if you do, Dave. But <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why'd you say me first? Why'd you say me she, first? No, she questioned whether you did. She stated as a fact that I, I, I do. So, David's a uh, grandfather, by the way, just yeah. so you know. <laughs> My neighbors think I'm nuts, but it, it works. And it has created um, quite a bit of interest. And um, my four-year average from the free throw line is 93%. So I'm doing it at a high clip. Welcome to episode 48 of Wait, What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee, the podcast that takes an often irreverent, sometimes cynical, and occasionally even serious look at the business of sports. I'm your co-host, David Paro. And I'm Tim McGee. Well, it's hard to believe we're at the end of the year, almost as uh, much as it's hard to believe that there's a World Cup being played here in December. But here we are with our penultimate show of the first season. And I, like... Wait, all what? Our on, yeah, right? Penultimate? Yeah. <laughs> that means... Right, the one before the last, right? Yeah, I, I, I know what it means, but but um, I... if you recall, you started the season with the mixed oath reference, right? Min, so you're minced oath, yeah, yeah. So you're dropping these well SAT words. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't really feel penultimate is quite the level of minced oath, but I guess I beg know. to All differ. Right. All right, well. Have we agreed that this is the penultimate show, second to last show? I think next week's going to be our last show of the of the year before we take a little break. That would be the ultimate show. That, that will guess, be, yeah, it better be, it better be the ultimate show. Well, we can talk about this kind of stuff all day, of course, too. But <laughs> I think uh, I think everyone would prefer to know what is on your mind, Tim. Well, like Michael Corleone and. Godfather too. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. And of course, I'm talking about live golf, right? I thought we could get through a couple of episodes without talking about live golf, but that was not to be. Uh, I I think you saw the report, right, uh, that came out about uh, the study that McKinsey and Company, the leading management consulting firm that apparently has been doing work for the Saudis for the better part of 25 or 30 years came out and did a study on live golf and surprise, surprise money making profits was not the number one goal of the Saudi uh, investment fund that, that put their money into live golf. They, in my opinion, mistakenly thought that this was going to put Saudi Arabia in a favorable light on the global stage after uh, the killing of Khashoggi, uh, the constant pressure put on nine, by 9-11 families, and the fact that 18 of the 19 hijackers in the World Trade Center and other attacks on 9-11 were Saudi nationals. Um, that has backfired. I think there has been much more negative press about Live Golf than there has been positive. But some of the things... That McKinsey predicated its report on were, number one, 
uh, Live Golf would have to sign the top 12 golfers in the world golf rankings. They've gotten four. Very, very simple goal. I mean, right. it should have been a layup. Attract sponsors, get a TV deal. It was predicated on the tour just letting this happen without any response or or anything. Um, uh, and so what was the result of it? Um you know, it cost them $750 million to put it on in year one. They've already committed to $405 million in prize money in year two. Right. Um, and then, and then one other thing that they, they reached out to a number of very high profile celebrities and business titans, um, politico types to see if they would join the board. The names I heard mentioned, um, Michael Jordan, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, former AT&T CEO and Chairman Randall Stevenson, who said uh, that he had not been asked, and if he had been, it would have been a very short conversation. So it kind of reminds me of that old routine by Steve Martin when he did stand-up comedy back when we were kids, right? How to make a million dollars. First, get a million dollars, right? Yep. <laughs> so yeah, they, first, it, sign it, the it, top 12 golfers. Right. It really was. I mean, there. If you put this plan in place, it's not that the plan in place. Here's how it's gonna. Here's how it's gonna work. Here's going to have to do to make it work. It's not that they're illogical thoughts, other than particularly that one about signing all the golfers and expecting no pushback. Was it just completely unrealistic? But it does obviously show what I think most of us really thought that that this was a a you know, kind of a well-orchestrated or at least well-attempted sports wash um, to try to, you know, to try to bolster uh, the image and, and utilizing golf and utilizing a sport uh, that people of of means um, would want to, uh, you know, say travel to Saudi Arabia, invest more in various uh, businesses uh, in the country. You know, the, if they're going down that path, they certainly got themselves uh, in the news quite a bit. But to your initial point here, uh, I think the majority of the promotion around it, publicity around it, has ended up being being somewhat negative, and it's just gotten so contentious that I think a lot of people just don't want to hear about it. By the way, it was pretty amazing because we actually had a run of a few weeks here without any conversation about live. Um, so they did listen. They did get some a couple top players, um, but they also got some very controversial ones. Right, Patrick Reed. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau, two of the most um, controversial and I would probably argue least liked players on the tour, uh, were two that that seemed to fairly quickly jump on board with them. Phil Mickelson, who is a legendary American golfer, uh, I think's reputation has taken quite a quite a beating over this. But yeah, all of the things that you would normally do with a with a tour get the get the TV deal, obviously get sponsors. But that idea of signing all of the top players and just thinking that they were going to be able to walk in scot free without some pushback, I think, was a little ridiculous. Uh, yeah, well, and, very ridiculous. And in, in McKinsey's defense, they did some scenario planning, right? They they did a sort of a ideal scenario, a best case scenario, you know most likely scenario and sort of doomsday scenario from what I saw. And uh, the report I read said it's, you know, it's closer to the latter than to the former, right. In terms of what scenario is playing out. But yeah, interestingly, you know, Phil, Phil Mickelson was not one of the, you know, most disliked players on the tour, not even close to it. Right. But he certainly said some things and did some things that did not endear himself to fans 
um, especially fans of the of the tour. Um, I, I would I would argue that the most important thing that has gone on in this entire live golf tour sort of spat that's been going on is is Rory McIlroy and and Tiger Woods being so vocal in their in their criticism of live golf and support for for the tour and and you know give credit to Tiger Woods for turning down a remarkable amount of money even for him not to join live golf um somebody who understands what the tour has done for him and his career and his livelihood yeah so speaking of that it's interesting because the match this latest iteration of the match um from capital one was played out this weekend and they actually did it at night in florida a saturday night um and they they did a different format which they generally are always trying and it was tiger and world number one rory mcelroy um to are you know two definitive leaders of, among tour players against two other guys that have been very vocal against Liv as well. Well, one's been very vocal, that being Justin Thomas, uh, and um, Jordan Spieth being the other, who has been a, a, obviously a, a strong supporter of the tour. I don't think he's been quite as vocal as those other three um, in uh, in talking about Liv. But they were showcased. It was Rory and Tiger versus JT and Jordan Spieth and. Spieth and Thomas like put a put a hurt on him. I actually spoke, didn't watch. Yes, yeah, yeah, I didn't actually get to watch it, but I watched the opening. So the opening was basically a tour homage, uh, and also a Tiger Woods homage from all of these uh, from from these other great great golfers. Uh, but what it also allowed was a was a huge peek into what tomorrow golf is. By the way, we now know that they you know TMRW. Which they've never said exactly what it stood for, even though there's a you know an Eminem, Rory, and a Tiger, or whatever. <laughs> They're saying tomorrow golf. It was the first time I heard anyone say it. I guess I should have known that, but I'm like, oh, they just say tomorrow sports. But they did kind of give a peek of what's coming in 2024 with basically a simulator based golf. So it ended up being a uh, an ad really for for what's coming from this group of players along with the tour because the tour has partnered up with them on uh, on what they're going to be unveiling for 2024. Yeah, Tom tomorrow golf not unlike live, right? Or the right. zone right. or if I may today 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 that's your pronunciation of the year. I'm going to do a bit, I think. I don't get your pronunciation of the year. I, I got to disagree with you. I think Antetokounmpo. Oh no, it was, was my... but I'm I'm going to do yes, that's up there. Yeah, we'll have to do a whole bit of <laughs> recap videos on your great pronunciations. I'm very proud of you, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. No doubt, no doubt about that. Let's take a switch and talk about what's going on over in the Middle East right now as we're in the uh, semifinal stage of World Cup. As we're recording this, by the way, uh, at halftime, my Croatia, the team I'm pulling for at this point, is down to nothing to Argentina. So that's mm -hmm. kind of a bummer. But uh, we're going to just finish out this podcast and hope things turn around over there. I, I want to start with what is is a sad story, which is the death of Sports Illustrated journalist uh, Grant Wall, who I've never met, uh, but I do follow him on social, uh, and I've seen him quite a bit. Uh, doing his interviews and and you know speaking of this sport that he loves so much and it's very rare to see such universal outpouring uh, for uh, for someone who died at the age of 49 while covering a match over in Qatar and there was some 
what I think was kind of silly speculation that came out early because he was such an advocate for human rights, particularly for the LGBTQ community. But it, it, you know, it just seems like it's an absolute health tragedy uh, that befell uh, Grant and, um, you know, obviously our best wishes to uh, his friends and family and, and colleagues that, uh, that, that um, love him so much because he really was a universally um, praised uh, journalist. What a, what a tragic story. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm deeply saddened by his passing, but also um, really touched by how long and how much coverage his passing has gotten. Um, I didn't re- I, you know, like you, I followed him because he is, you know, was the, was the premier voice for soccer here in the United States as a journalist. I, I'd be hard pressed to name somebody else, quite frankly. Um, and then with regards to the, the rumors that started and have subsequently been quelled about foul play being suspected, that was started by his brother. And I would like to give his brother the benefit of the doubt because um, I don't know how I would deal with the grief and shock of losing my brother, especially, as you said, somebody who was so young and, and, and full of life. But um, the State Department has said that they do not suspect foul play at this point. His, his body has been returned to the United States yeah. and they will conduct an autopsy. But as of right now, there's they don't suspect foul play was actually involved. Right. Well, part of why this came up is because he was a very outspoken supporter of of all human rights. So he did show up with a uh, a rainbow around a soccer ball shirt that he was asked to remove, um, and uh, his phone was taken for a while. He ultimately got got those things back, um, but it he I think did go over there not to necessarily make a scene, but he wanted to cover soccer, the sport that he loves, and he's made his life of uh, his life's work, but to be able to talk about these, these issues that Qatar is faced with, because they're real issues. It's not as though, you know, we've touched on this several times. It's not as though world cup comes and all those things go away. Cause those are real issues. And I think he was the kind of guy that this was so important to him that he was going to do what he could to shine a light on it. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't putting it in anybody's face. He just happened to to wear this anyway, I think that was a big piece of why he was so energized about even even going over there because this was a moment beyond just the coverage of this amazing event that happens every four years, the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. No, he he, uh, he certainly, to paraphrase, you know, he didn't just shut up and dribble, or he didn't just shut up and right. cover people dribbling. Um, you know, what I found particularly audacious was that a Qatari official said the other night that this has been the most inclusive. World Cup in history. I mean, that's just, that's gaslighting to the extreme. Yeah. You know, again, we, we, you know, we've been talking about the world has been shining a light on Qatar since they were awarded the games in 2010, at the end of 2010. But there was yet another death of a worker during the World Cup at the resort the Saudi team was staying at while the Saudis were still in, in the tournament. Um, and human rights groups around the world estimate, because it's hard to get an official number, that 6,500 workers, primarily migrant workers, who were shipped into Qatar to work on construction have died since construction began of the stadium. Now, I did a little bit of research before coming on the show. Um, the Empire State Building, which was built back in the 1930s, five people died during the building of the Empire State Building. Um, 21 people died 
uh, in the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, which goes back to the end of the 19th century. And despite what many of our listeners think, I was not around for the unveiling <laughs> of the Brooklyn Bridge at that time. So, and, so, so I, I take it you're going to say something that you'd think safe, safety standards when it comes to building might have improved over that time? I'd like to believe so, right? And 60 people, construction workers died during the building of the initial Twin Towers in Lower Manhattan. So for 6,500 migrant workers to have died shows a, 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 a sheer and utter disregard for human life, in my, in my humble opinion. The Qataris have pushed back in terms of that, of that number, but they've admitted that there have been a good number of deaths. So any, any number is bad. And I, you know, it's, not always just tied directly to the outright building, but the conditions that are sustained and and the the care that these workers who came in with the dream of making some money and being able to send them back home um, and build this you know amazing event uh, and the, and quite honestly build the city um, and just it's just been from that standpoint been a complete disaster even if the number is significantly less than that that higher one that has been reported for sure. Um, Hey, I want to talk about a sponsorship piece that's kind of gotten a little attention around World Cup. And it, it, we talked about Budweiser and the fact that a lot of their units, uh, you know, and retail kiosks had to be pulled at the last minute. And that was, you know, caused a lot of stir. Uh, but there has been another story coming around. And we've talked about uh, Kylian Mbappe, the star striker from, um, from the French team, uh, who will not endorse an alcoholic beverage. And he has won the Man of the Match Award several times already uh, over mm -hmm. in Qatar. And when he accepts the award, he'll accept the award, but he will turn the trophy, which is a trophy, which you know, you know, almost has a bud can feel to it at the bottom. He will not appear with it. And for the most part, people have respected the fact that he won't do it. But after um, uh, France's win over England, uh, this weekend, another amazing, uh, exciting match. Um, uh, Olivier Giraud in the 78th minute had an amazing header to put the game away. Mm -hmm. um, and when he posed, he didn't turn the Budweiser logo to the camera either. I personally, I haven't heard that he did that on purpose or as a show of support for uh, Mbappe. Uh, it almost looks like he just had it you know, the wrong way. Uh, I don't know. I haven't heard if he has a particular story on that. Anyway, I... I you know, as people in this business, and while I respect people's, you know, ability to do stuff if they have, um, uh, you know, have a real strong reason against it, you know, these partners are putting these things on, um, making these events happen. I feel, I, again, I feel bad for AB. Yeah, they have been, uh, they have been somewhat snake bitten during this tournament. Uh, perhaps Giro believes that if it's, it's only Budweiser if it's made in the Budweiser region. And otherwise, it's just <laughs> it's just beer. All right, my man, champagne, <laughs> uh, Bordeaux. All right. Um, however, there is potentially one more issue that AB and Budweiser may have to face because, as you recall, when they were told that they were not going to be able to sell beer in most areas around the World Cup, including the stadiums, uh, their response and their pivot was quite brilliant and quite quite nimble. They said they were going to throw a kick-ass party in the winning country. Morocco is a Muslim country, so if <laughs> if Morocco were to prevail prevail and win the World Cup, um, 
I don't know what they're going to do with the beer. It, it would it would literally go down in history as the most snake bitten sponsorship uh, event of all time. Like how um, many different things can pile up? Well, hold on one second. I've got FTX on line one for Yeah. Well, I know, but that's not a sing- <laughs> that's not a single thing. <laughs> how, how about how about a? Oh wait, I'm sorry. Andy Fastow from Enron is on line yeah, two. Well, no, but I'm talking about a single event where just a series yes. of things would yeah. go wrong. I mean, it would almost be perfect if I mean, in Morocco now is the is the underdog, and and their matches have been uh, fantastic. So who knows yeah, what's going to happen? Coming I up. have I have no doubt that that. AB would pivot once again and do something really fun and, and creative around it, regardless, they, right? They absolutely would. That's what because that's what they do. Anything else on World Cup you want to hit on? Yeah, I want to talk about your boy Gio Reyna. Um, so a couple of days ago, Coach Burkhalter in, in an interview talked about a player who he refused to name, who was uh, on the verge of being kicked off the squad and sent home right and uh as you, as you informed me before we came on the air the team actually held a vote as to whether or not he should remain on the team and, and he, he did um uh, with with the understanding that he would he would uh, apologize to the team and change his ways it turns out it was Gio Reyna and I think a lot of fans were asking why he wasn't getting more playing time during the tournament um you know young star uh, both his parents played for U.S. national teams in World Cup competition. Um, he's, a, he's a great young player. Um, now, there's always two sides to every story. Reina's story that has come out in social primarily was that he was informed by the coaching staff before the tournament started that he would see very little playing time. Now, I, I'm of two minds, right? Um if you recall when we had Marcelo Balboa on, he talked about the mental preparation that goes into the in, into the, the tournament, and he said the first thing I want to know is am I starting or not, right? Because you prepare mentally, I suppose, differently. So on one hand, um, you know, Burkhalder was saying, you know, you're not going to be getting a lot of playing time, so I guess he was mentally preparing Reina for that scenario. But there's there's another there's another school of thought that says, you know, not knowing what injuries are going to be like, what yellow cards and red cards are going to be like, you don't want to put somebody in a situation where they feel like they're not going to get a chance before the tournament even begins. But Reina said, yes, he took it personally and he let his emotions get the best of him. He didn't try in, in training. And when he was called out on it, he recognized that he needed to be a better team player. So he also took exception to the fact that, you know, Burkhalter's philosophy is we keep things in house. And he went very public with this, despite the fact that he didn't name Reina, but I have to believe he knew that Reina's name was going to eventually come out publicly. So, so a little bit of you know post Team USA um, drama going on. Yeah, a lot of drama, more drama than than I think you want to see. It's not that. Listen, all teams have their drama inside. The question is, is can coaches turn that drama into something positive? In this case, on the pitch, uh, or does it just? Um, you know, kind of sap the energy away and the, and the driveway. I, we don't know if any of that happened. I mean, I think the I think the U.S. team put up a reasonably good tournament. Um, uh, they did some really good things uh, in matches, uh, but it was still a, a disappointing way to go out. And I think if you watch the overall play, you know that you know the U.S. men's national team has a ways to go uh, in terms of getting keeping up with the competition. Even though anything can happen in in, in a single game. 
Um, but you're now seeing some unbelievable play, and I'm not I'm not sure we're quite there yet. And so you no, do, I, you, yeah. if nothing else, you like to see things like well oiled. And who knows what the you know who knows what the future for uh, uh, Coach uh, Burhalter is, but we, we'll see. Yeah, you know there is a there is a school of thought that he knows he's on his way out, and that's why he's sort of saying those things in interviews. I don't know, um, and I apologize. I've been calling him Burhalter instead of Burhalter. So, but before we leave this topic, keep in mind that we are four years removed from the U.S. men not making the tournament, and then to get out of the group stage. Uh, yes, they have a ways to go, but I'm a glass half full type of guy. And I hope that, you know, they can build upon this for the next four years going into um, the U.S., uh, you know, the North American World Cup in yeah. 2026. No, I'm, I'm with you, which is why I think that that kind of drama happening at the end, is that going to end up being anything that that poisons the well, so to speak, um, uh, into those into those other competitions and and various other things that they have to be focused on now. But hopefully it was a step forward. Yeah, the players and the coaching staff are all adults, and you'd like to believe that they can address whatever outstanding issues there are before they move forward, right? right. Um, and we'll see. Right. We'll see. Before we welcome a guest, I, I think we have to recognize the fact that um, uh, Brittany Griner, who we've spoken about quite a bit on the show, uh, was released. Uh, in a uh, prisoner swap, which has a lot of people really upset, it seems, but a lot of people, I think, cheering for this, uh, for her, for her to, you know, be home. Um, and I mean, people are going to have their views, and uh, I, I, I don't see how it's not a good thing to uh, to have an American home. But how can you be opposed to an American being released from a Russian prison? Now, you can question whether or not the deal for uh, the Merchant of Death, the arms dealer, Victor Bout, Boot, however you say it, for Griner was a fair deal, right? And that's that to me, that's a that's a valid argument, right? Because there are all these ramifications. If somebody takes somebody else hostage or prisoner or wrongly imprisons them, can they get somebody, you know, released from prison? That to me is a valid topic of discussion. But being upset that an American citizen was released to me is just absolutely appalling. And we should all be celebrating the fact that Brittany Griner is home with her family. And I particularly like the fact that her first act or one of her first acts on American soil was she went into the gym on the base where she is uh, recovering in San Antonio and dunked the basketball. Uh, talk about symbolism. Uh, well, I thought that was awesome. On that dunk story, I think it's a great time to take a break, and we are going to be back with a really exciting guest right after this. It's time for our guest. We are really excited to welcome our next guest. Debbie Antonelli is a college basketball analyst who works for a number of media outlets, including ESPN, the Big Ten Network, CBS, Fox, and Westwood One. Um, she's also done WNBA games for ESPN and NBA TV since the inception of the league. Um, Debbie was a college student athlete playing for the legendary coach Kay Yao at NC State University. After graduating, um, she went into work in the sports business, first with the University of Kentucky uh, and then with uh, Ohio State University before transitioning to her role as an analyst. Uh, Debbie is also a recent uh, inductee into the women's College Basketball Hall of Fame. So we are really honored and really excited to have Debbie on the show. Debbie, welcome. 
Hey guys, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I'm looking forward to this conversation for a nice chat. Great. Awesome. Great. So let's get started. We are uh we're not quite in the the really thickest part of the college basketball season, right? Because we still have some football to play, but uh, there have been some great games on both the men's and the women's side so far. What are the teams that you're looking at to do big things this year? And what are you most excited to watch uh, as we go into the new year and then ultimately into conference tournaments and then the, the big dance? Well, I'm excited about a lot of teams. I think, you know, we've had maybe it's a result of COVID. Maybe it's just the timing that we've seen a lot of the big boys play each other early on. Right. Um it's really hard to get college basketball on the map right now because of football and, and what you mentioned about we still have bowl games and, and so forth. Uh, but I think there's a lot of really good teams out there. And I think this could be the year that a mid-major could really take down some of the bigs. I mean, we've seen early on some really good teams. Um, and and I know I'm sort of talking in circles, but, um, you know, I, I've always been a big fan of the way Matt Painter does things at Purdue. I'm not surprised they go from unranked or low in the poll to number one. That doesn't surprise me. Zach Eady is obviously one of the most fascinating players to watch, and the freshman backcourt has been outstanding. And Matt knows how to save a few things in his back pocket for second half of games, second half of the season. I think he's the ultimate, uh, you know, um, adjuster inside a game, and, and I really enjoy his teams. I think uh, I love the Big East, all the teams in the Big East. That's must-watch TV. I, I enjoy that style of play, mainly because it's a lot of five out, maybe four out, one in, and they pass and cut, and they shoot it and score, and they play hard every possession. They cut hard. I love teams that cut hard. That's my new emphasis this year. I'm looking for teams that really cut, you know, pass and cut and move without the ball. Then, um, you know, in the ACC – I've always been a fan of what Tony Bennett has done. I just think it's solid. I don't think you need to have a lot of style or, you know, flashy play, but the way they play has already proven that they can win. Now they're going to be knocking on the door again. Uh, they already won one championship. I can see them with the way they play having um, nightmares for some other teams to try to score against. And they're better offensively this year. So that makes it very interesting, but you know, we can break down a lot of different teams, Tim, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm really excited about watching what happens once we get the football out of the way, you know, let's just move <laughs> on past football. Let's get going. <laughs> Does it, do you see anybody beating uh, Dawn Staley and Aaliyah Boston in South Carolina? Yeah. On the women's side, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think there is more balance and more parity. Uh, I think every year I feel like we have more teams that have a chance to win. Obviously they're the most dominant team, but the things that you have to hold on to if you're hoping that we have some balance or a team that actually can compete is, you know, Stanford should have won the game of regulation. The game went to overtime and, and South Carolina made the plays they needed to win. UCLA had them by double digits and uh, at home and South Carolina made the plays they needed to play to make to win. Um, I think they're clearly the best team. I even think they're so good that if they can absorb injury. There's a lot of different positions that they could absorb an injury, and a lot of teams can't do that. We're seeing how tough it has been for UConn with their injuries to try to continue to win. I think Dawn Staley could keep winning. But I think there's a lot of really good teams in the women's game. And on the women's side, uh, situations. You know, if if we are going to have the kind of parity, then you better know how to execute at the end of the game. You better be ready to finish off and win games because I think – 
because of parity, there's a lot of games that are going to come right down to the last couple of possessions. You know, you mentioned um, your focus this year from an analyst standpoint on the teams that cut hard. I want to say, Tim, you'll you'll be happy to know, and Debbie, I'm sure you recall Pete Carell, a legendary coach of uh, Princeton. I did camp, and I would get yelled at by this man so much if I if I didn't cut hard on my back doors. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it was brutal. I've never been yelled at more. <laughs> I love that. I mean, the game is positionless, right? So right. if you're going to have seven, six, seven, six, nine that are going to play facing up. 6'10", facing up, able to knock down threes, pick and pop, short roll, all the stuff that bigs can do now. You have to have guys that can really cut. It affects the spacing. And I'm a big believer in making the game easier for your teammates. And that is by cutting hard, setting good screens, running the floor hard every time, not just when you want. I mean, sprinting to the corners really flattens out the defense. And if you got a really good guard on the top of the floor, they can make plays and get you the ball. Uh, I, I've always been um, – I think the game is simple when you when you look at it that way. You know, we David, talk just I'm sorry, David, before you go. David's six yeah. two, but he plays like he's five eight, just so yeah, you know. I, Debbie. I, I, Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway, listen, we before we we actually started um recording, you're talking about the challenges that, that coaches have today with all these changes, transfer portal and NIL and so forth. So uh, we wanted to kind of go to a business front from you, just as a former athlete, now somebody that that covers these athletes. Um, what are your general thoughts on the, you know, the changes that have come because of name, image, and likeness, uh, positive or negative? And, and, you know, is there anything that you can point to that really is changing or is it just, this is where we are and here's where we need to go? Well, uh, first of all, it's not going away. So we have to figure out how to work with it and around it and how we can use it to benefit and teach. I think um, on the women's side, there might not be the same amount of money um, overall on the NIL, except for, you know, a person here, a person there. But, um, you know, I look at it like you're supposed to get a job when you come out of college. That's why a mom sends three boys to college so they can get a job, graduate, find a job, start their life. Well, that's the same thing for basketball players. It's not any different. Their job could be basketball. It might not. If you go by the NCAA's percentage and propaganda, less than 2% are pros, right? So um, if, if I was a player at NC State right now, yes, I could run a shooting camp and I could do some other things and I could probably make a, a few dollars over on the side, but it's certainly not going to be something I'm going to retire on. But what it does is NIL has allowed me an opportunity to network the corporate world and find out if there is someone that graduated from NC State that is in my line of thinking where I want to go, then I have a chance now that I could have a cup of coffee with that person or set up a time to go to their office. You couldn't do that stuff before. So the educational part of the NIL space, I think, is really important for college athletes to grasp that part of it and take advantage of it. Um, you know, there's legislation in front of the NCAA right now to just give every player five years. However, the shape or form that comes in, I don't know about the injury part of it, but if you want to go here and you want to transfer there, you get five years, that's your clock, that's what you get. I think that might pass. I think that way, you know, part of the reason why they made el uh, everybody eligible right away when they transferred is so that when you filled out the paperwork and you were leaving because it was playing time and it wasn't for any other reason, then you got to say something derogatory about the person that you left so that you can get cleared so you can be eligible right away. And we don't want to do that. Like, 
we just don't want to do that. Controlling the, you know, the actors that have come into our game when we spend so much time trying to get rid of them based on all the rules that the NCAA has. I'm waiting for the Constitution um, rebranded uh, to see what that looks like and how that's going to affect college athletics. So there's, it's definitely a changing time. Um, I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell and The Outliers is a book about how and why things happen. As an analyst, that's what I do in game. I try to tell the viewer how and why things are happening on the floor. Well, I, I think it's a good time for us to be asking all those questions about why are we doing certain things or why have practices been this way? Why can't we do these sort of practices and try to uh, make the game better and easier for everyone? You have a really valuable perspective on the women's game, right? Having played it, having been a marketing executive, now an analyst. What can the NCAA do and continue to do to ensure that the women's game is given the respect, the resources, and whatever else it needs to continue to grow? Man, that's like a 35-year-old loaded question. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I have... Uh, first of all, you need to know this, Tim, and I think, David, you you, you know, I, I'm not a complainer. Like, I'm not complaining. I'm trying to provide solutions. I want to be a thinker. I want to figure out how, like, what resources do we have that we could utilize to the best of our ability? Well, there's a couple of things. And, you know, I look, I don't want to get fired, so I have to be really careful about <laughs> how I, I bridge this because ESPN and the NCAA are partners. I'm not speaking on behalf of ESPN with any of my comments. I'm really talking about as a longtime supporter and advocate of the game that has campaigned and platformed for different changes in our game to try to make it easier and better for the players and the coaches. Um, so, you know, I, I think um, there's a lot of different areas that can go um, to help the women's game. Uh, I think gambling is a big part of it. There's a, a whole new frontier out there with sports betting that if there were lines on our games every night, I think people would bet if you're putting money on a game, you're watching. If you're watching ratings go up, if ratings go up, we have inventory to sell. We have to create. I think I've always been a big believer in creating inventory to sell, create our own inventory. What do we have that we can utilize to sell our game? And it's mainly comes down to our our coaches, um, the universities and institutions um, and some of the key players that we have that are you know, must see TV sort of. So television, you know, has to grow. Um, I don't know how ESPN and or the NCAA are going to put the package together for bid when the contract expires between ESPN and the NCAA. I'm not privy to all that stuff. I do know from um, a programming standpoint that ESPN works really hard to put the right games on television so that we can try to stimulate some ratings. I have felt for years that's been going on, but I'm not sure anybody was actually selling. So if you're not selling, then we're doing all these other things and really selling our game, creating inventory and putting the game in the most positive light that we can is, is really important. And the last thing I would say on that is um, something that I preach all the time. The product is the narrative. That's the narrative, the game, the product, the players, they are good. We have a lot of good teams. It's very exciting if you actually know the game and pay attention. Uh, and, and that's that's sort of where I, I go with my comments about those kind of questions, because I have been in the weeds on a lot of different ideas and solutions. And, um, 
you know, if I was in charge of the NCAA, there's things that I would do differently. Actually, I have a little list over here I keep up with <laughs> on my wall that if I'm president for the day, I know exactly what I would do. <laughs> if, if we do air this clip as a video clip, we're happy to take that and show it in the, in the screen as an inset, oh, if you like, but maybe not. Yeah, I, I I just, you know, like I want to be on the rules committee. Everybody knows that. I campaign for that on the air. I don't like some of our rules. I think some of our rules on the women's side uh, and the men's side could be duplicated. It's difficult, challenging. They have the cylinder rule. They have a flopping rule. The women's game does not have those rules. Um, besides just the the window dressing of the four quarters and the two halves. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I would do some things a little differently and uh I, I just I joke about it, um, but uh, I do think strongly about some things we could do that could make our game more presentable. Well, listen, you come at it from multiple perspectives, so I think uh, I think your POV on this is pretty darn valid. So uh, um, thank you for sharing what you did. Um, you had obviously you moved from being a someone in the sports business, working on the business side, and moving into broadcasting. You you know following your uh, getting your master's at uh, at one of the great sport management programs at University of Ohio, uh, I think that was probably your your plan to move in. David, it's Ohio University, Ohio, just so yes. we don't get angry calls from from the esteemed right. graduates. I, and, I, I, I actually uh, know and that. Just so alumni right. and, and no, and you're right. I would, I would be, wait, what? I, I will. Get, I will get that. Thank you for the point out. But I do want to say in my in my in my defense, which is a lame in my defense, but. Spending most of my life in Chicago, when people would say, you know, uh, um, you know, Ohio University versus University of Ohio at or what those type, I usually felt like I had it, and I had an opportunity with someone who's a illustrious grad of the program, and I completely botched it. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to call you out. I was I'm yeah, just no, grateful that no. you didn't call it the Ohio. You can University. be you can be sorry, but you'll do it again. I know next episode. So um, anyway, yeah, right, <laughs> right. Okay, so you started on your career, and then you ultimately made a decision because you got a little taste of broadcasting. Take us through that like ultimate decision to say you were going to focus your your energies on the broadcasting side versus continuing to pursue. Um, a, a sports business career, which I'm sure would have continued to grow. Well, I went to Ohio U because uh, I thought I was going to be an athletic director. That was the plan. I was a graduate assistant on the basketball staff for, for the women. So I, I was an assistant or a GA and I had my, my uh, love for the game was still being able to be fed, you know, during my time there. So I'm, I'm working towards becoming an athletic director and the two jobs that I had in college athletics, definitely were on the external affairs side as a director of marketing. And I really thought 30 years ago, that was definitely the path for me. There weren't any women in football. There weren't women, you know, on the men's side. And so for me, I didn't really think that the SWA path was something I wanted to go or senior women's administrator. I really thought being an AD was um, going to be on the external side would help me. So when I was at Kentucky, I was 23 when I started. We had the local cable company came and asked us if they could produce a sports event, and they thought they could do basketball. So my boss at the time was Gene Filippo, who hired me with Sam Newton, hired me to be the director of marketing. Gene said, do you want to do the game? And I said, yeah, I mean, I'd love to try it. Uh, let's see how it goes. And I was like instantly hooked. I thought this was really kind of cool. There weren't many games on. There weren't any women except for 
the CBS national championship game that was on. There weren't any games on TV. And I thought, this is kind of cool. So I did those games. Then I had a chance to work at Ohio State. When I got to Ohio State, uh, we had a really good women's basketball program. And my time coincided with Katie Smith, the four-time um, All-Big Ten player, uh, Naismith Hall of Famer, three Olympic gold medals, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Katie was an unbelievable player. And I, I went when I got to Columbus, they didn't have any games on television. So I went to the local cable company and I asked them if they could produce sports. They said they thought they could. I said, what would it cost for eight games? It was like $50,000. So I said, OK, I'm going to sell the inventory and the advertising. You get ready to produce eight games. And then I got a play by play guy and I called the games. It kept me in that um, broadcasting side. And I also, I also was doing the radio games for Ohio State. So uh, it, it just sort of worked like a parallel path with I'm still thinking I'm going to be an AD, but I'm getting ready to, you know, get my fix on the basketball side. And then on the basketball side, I saw there were some other opportunities that I could work outside of the Columbus area. And um, my husband and I, we had our first child. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to give this radio and TV thing a full-time gig and, and see if I can make it go. And that's sort of what happened. So I left my job at Ohio State after my son Joey was born. And um, started calling more games in a regional level. And uh, 35 years later, my oldest son is 27. Um, it's worked out 35 years on the air and 27 years. I've been able to make a whole uh, entire career out of it, which I never believed could have happened. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great because David and I are thinking about getting into broadcasting, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, Wait, no, one, but no one's, but no one's asked us. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. So back on a more serious note, um, you've been involved with the WNBA since the inception of the league, right? And there's been tremendous growth and tremendous change in, in the league. What's the biggest changes that you've seen in the 25 plus years that the, that the WNBA has been around? Boy, I tell you what, the league is great. And, and once again, it's the product. You know, it's I stand on the product. People always ask me, what's your favorite thing about the 18 years with the Indiana Fever? I had five years with the Charlotte Sting, which dissolved and went away. Mm -hmm. And then I had 18 years with the Fever. And then now I do the Daily Wager Show, which is uh, a really interesting, uh, I like to call it the frontier in the women's game. Like it's the new launch, right? It's where we need to be. Tamika Catchings by far was the best thing that I got to do in the WNBA. <laughs> Every wow. night I got to watch Tamika, who was a relentless competitor, who cared deeply about the success of the league, who was a great teammate and was the hardest worker. Now, there would be uh, days on um, on game day where she would be in the gym shooting and I might go in there and rebound for her and just talk to her. I might go in there and hang out with her while she's using the dish and just talk to her and um, th those are my favorite memories. Um, that's just because Tamika was just an unbelievable person and such a great ambassador for the game. Uh, but I, I think the, the greatest growth has been in the social media part of it. You know, the social media has lifted the league to a, a, a platform where these players use their, their platforms and they use their, their voices to try to lift the product. And I, I think there are a lot of ways that they do that. There's a lot of activity and engagement that they get involved in, but mainly there's a little more television coverage, but there's a lot more social media engagement. And I think the product continues to maintain a, a level of excellence. Uh, thanks for that. I think it's a good time to ask the this next question that we wanted to have you touch on. Um, Cause some time ago we had 
uh, WNBA commissioner uh, Kathy Engelbert on, and it was right around the anniversary, 50th anniversary of Title IX. We're still obviously in that 50th anniversary year. So we're wondering if you could share any personal perspective on maybe what it has meant to you, uh, if you believe the overall legacy is something that's a positive uh, and maybe where we still need to go as it relates to, um, uh, you know, creating an equal playing field uh, mm -hmm. for women in sports. Well, I was eight when Title IX passed. I was nine when I played on my first team, which was a basketball team, a CYO team in Hyde Park, New York at Regina Chaley. I remember exactly who my coach was and everything. Uh, and then um, we didn't have a softball option. And I was good enough to try out because you had to try out to make the Little League baseball team. And so I was picked. My dad says seventh pick in the first round as a 10-year-old. Uh, I could lay down a bunt and I could field a ground ball and I was good enough to be able to play. So um, I had those experiences early on, but I, I think um, the most important thing here is sport is supposed to be used to develop the whole wellness of a human being from a physical, emotional and mental standpoint. That's why we play. That's originally why play was, was put in place. Uh, if you go way back, you know, into the ancient history uh, that, you know, and getting, getting a chance to play is really important because you learn a lot of things about not just yourself, but about being on a team. Everyone should be given an opportunity to play. I have a different perspective, not just from a Title IX standpoint, but I have a Special Olympic athlete. He deserves to play. He gets a chance to play and participate. Um, and it's, it's so important for young girls. It's especially important. I have for the last six summers and I will have another three weeks of camp this summer. I have a girls only sports camp. We teach 20 different sports. If you're a six, seven, eight year old little girl and you've never had a field hockey stick or lacrosse stick or put the football pads on, everybody's kicked a soccer ball and shot hoops. You haven't thrown an ultimate Frisbee or played rugby. You haven't put your feet in the starter blocks and learned to, you know, sprint and long jump. And we do all these different things for a week. And what I'm trying to do is get them to experience sport and, and fall in love with something that they can play and that they can utilize as an outlet and utilize uh, not just as an outlet for their day to day, but uh, uh, something they can use for a measure of growth, you know, confidence and self-esteem and learn how to take care of yourself and start building good habits around sport and then learning how to be a teammate. Because being on a team is something you're always going to do. You will forevermore be on a team. It could be a workplace. It could be a sports team. It could be your family. And you need to learn how to, to deal with that. And I think, you know, what we're doing with our camps is uh, really special in our community. And um, Title IX has afforded people some awareness that if nothing else, it's taught people that there was a time where girls were not allowed to play. How could you ever believe that that could be true today, right? Would you ever believe that there was a time where people couldn't do that? We still have a lot of issues in our country, but not being able to play, that, that's that's horrible. You know, that's just horrible. So um, I'm glad that there is a big celebration to recognize why that legislation was important and why it had to be implemented and what we've been able to do because of it. And I'm here because of Title IX. If it wasn't for Title IX, I never would have been given the opportunities to do the things that I got to do. And I'm grateful for it every day. And I have three boys and I want my boys to be grateful for understanding yeah. how important.
Awesome. That's great. You you mentioned that you have a special Olympian. Um, tell us a little bit about the nothing but net challenge that you started. Um, I, I just I think it's absolutely phenomenal, and I would love our listeners to to hear about it. Well, thank you, Tim, for asking, and thank you for supporting. Um, so it's a crazy idea, and it worked. It's 24 hours of free throws. On the top of every hour, I make 100 free throws for 24 straight hours. So at the end of 24 hours, I've made 2,400 free throws. If every person I know gave a penny, that would be $24. It's all for Special Olympics. I do it in my driveway. We've done it for four years. We have raised over $635,000 in four years for Special Olympics. Last year, I had seven different states that were participating at the same time, raising money for their own state. So in North Carolina, they raise money in North Carolina. It stays in North Carolina. I live in South Carolina. Money I raise stays in South Carolina. And um, it's, it's been quite remarkable, the growth that I've seen from a grassroots effort. Every person that donates, regardless of the amount of money, I write a handwritten note to. Uh, the first year was... 325 people gave 85,000. The second year, 650 people gave 125,000. The third year, 980 gave 205. This year, 1,000 people gave 218. That gets us over 235. And um, I never thought I'd be able to say this, but we're going to raise a million. I'm going to raise a million dollars shooting free throws in my driveway. And it's not about the free throws. It, it's not that's not the story. We do live stream it. I do interview 15 Special Olympic athletes we throw on the live stream. I interview a lot of sports celebrities and actors on the live stream. And we try to provide some entertainment because it takes me between 10 and 12 and 15 minutes to make 100 free throws. And then we have 45 minutes of programming that we need to fill until we get back to the top of the hour. So it's actually crazy idea that uh, when I first presented it, of course, people are looking at me like, you're going to do what? I get AARP mail. I don't know if you do, Dave. <laughs> Wait, why'd you say me first? Why'd you say me she, first? No, she questioned whether you did. She stated as a fact I, that I, yeah. I, I do. So, David's a uh, grandfather, by the way, just yeah. so you know. <laughs> My neighbors think I'm nuts, but it, it works. And it has created um, quite a bit of interest. And... Um, my four-year average from the free throw line is 93%. So I'm doing it at a high clip. And I only say that because it, it it's like the work that has to go in to physically and mentally be prepared to do it. And I don't, I don't sleep. I do stay awake for 24 hours. And that's not even the hard part. I mean, the hard part is, is obviously the shooting. But it's, it's generated so much good because the money goes directly to Special Olympics and they need the money to organize and to compete and to socialize. And especially coming out of COVID, it, uh, it really has worked out to be something really special. And I'm really proud of it. And we have a lot of great teammates that help me. So it's not just me. That's great. Hey, before we go to our closing question, um, can you tell our listeners how they can get involved and where they can go find out more information? You know what? Thank you, guys. And I, I hope that somebody uh, will take a pen and write 24hoursnbn.com. It's the number 24hoursnbn.com. You can go to the site. If you just would give me a penny, it's $24 for Special Olympics. I think everyone can do that. 
it's definitely a grassroots effort. And uh, when we get closer to May 13 and 14 of 2023, which is when I will be doing it, uh, I hope you guys will help me out when that time rolls around. Absolutely. You can count on us. 93% was my senior year high school free throw shooting percentage. But I, I didn't I didn't wow. shoot that many. I don't think I don't think my it was a record for a while, but I think I only shot like 24. So it wasn't well, I'm impressed. Best, but I only got to the free throw line in college if the other team got a technical. Nope. My, <laughs> my my junior year it was like 32. So um not not so good, but I so I had one area of improvement. Okay. Daddy, just so you know, before you go, this is the part in the show where David plays uh, Bruce Springsteen Glory Days as the backing track <laughs> to, to the segment. Yeah, um, that is absolutely right. We are going to, speaking of speaking of playing tracks, we're actually going to skip one of our normal music segments because since you did such a good job of covering your um, the background and, and your how your career started, we're going to skip that question. Uh, for you and go right to this one, which is actually a little tougher. And that is if you had one piece of advice to give someone, particularly a younger person entering into either the sports business or wanting to be a broadcaster or wanting to be an athlete for that matter, what would you share? There is no substitute for hard work. You have to put the time in. You have to decide if this is something you really want to do. And if you want to be in sports as an athlete, there's no substitution for reps. You got to work. You got to put the time. And if you want to work in the sports business, you have to be able to take a job early on that maybe isn't the highest paying job and might provide some jobs that aren't that much fun. But if you can take the attitude of no job is too big or too small and I'm there to learn and I'm trying to improve, I'm not trying to prove. Um, that's my attitude um, lately. That's the th That's what I'm thinking about and I'm holding on to. I'm not here to prove I belong. I'm here to get better every day and I'm trying to improve. And, you know, it sounds so cliche when we talk about culture and identity and winning and the journey and the process and all that, but you really can't get away from it. It's so important. And it's, um, it's the pathway. There is no substitute for working hard. If you really want to do something, you're going to have to give up some sacrifices along the way, but you have to be willing to do that if you really want to be at the end, have a life that's so fulfilled being around sport. I mean, it's not surprising that that's phenomenal advice. Um, I can't thank you enough. We know you have to run to a board meeting. So thank you. Um, you started talking about Malcolm Gladwell and outliers and you ended with, even if you didn't mention him by name, the whole 10,000 hour rule. So we can't thank you enough for your time on, on the show today. Thanks. You guys are great. Thank you so much. Uh, Tim, I, I love seeing you, Dave. I feel like we'll be fast friends, buddy. Absolutely. Okay. Take care, Debbie. Take care. Wow. Uh, another great guest. Um, I think we have to rethink what we did last week, David, and not having a guest. When we get people like Debbie Antonelli who are kind enough to join us, I, I think it it just adds so much to what we do. Um, but uh, now's the point in the show where we take a look forward. So uh, I'm interested, intrigued, and somewhat scared to ask you what uh, what you're yeah, looking forward to now, in the week ahead. Well, obviously, I'm looking forward to you know watching a World Cup final this weekend, um, which will not feature my Croatia team, unfortunately, but Thanks, there is... I recorded the game, but okay. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Croatia, 
come on. You you have you have notifications going off all the time. So it seems that the world of I guess racket sports or paddle sports isn't only focused on pickleball. So I read about new investment coming into a sport or league called the Pro Padel League. Are Adele? you even familiar with this? It's P-A-D-E-L. It kind of looks like it could be pronounced paddle, and I thought it was until I looked into it, and it's the Pro Padel League, and they have their first team invested in in L.A. They have one team. They have a league, but they have one team, <laughs> and it was invested in by a capital venture capital company that's a spinoff from the Padel court manufacturer, E.E. Padel. I mean, you talk about an ecosystem that's just kind of raised about, but they're getting money from NHL players. They've raised 15 million for the pro Padel League. So not only are you gonna have to deal with multiple pickleball circuits, my friend, I just wanted you to know that you're gonna have this other one to contend with. And the only reason I brought it up in this segment is I gotta, I gotta read up more on this because where did this come from? Tell them they got to get in line because yeah. uh, I, I, I got enough. I got to I got to deal with with uh, with a pickel ball. Um, so is it is it paddle? Is it paddle ball? Is it's, it paddle it's, tennis? It's, it's basically yeah. It's paddle. It's paddle tennis in a way, but a different. Uh, it's more like a regular tennis ball, but with less compression. So it's it's more like pickleball meets tennis meets paddle tennis or platform tennis whatever whatever you call it in your region Taylor but it looked a lot or, more or like pro. paddle it looked more like it looked a lot more like paddle other than it's Patel. um i i i went back and looked twice so maybe someone's going to correct me and said no it's actually paddle but the announcer was saying Padel. Padel. well P -A -D -L. i'm not anyway. i'm not impressed <laughs> all right what about you well, I'm not looking forward to Padel <laughs> ball. Um, I am looking forward to the. Uh, I am looking forward to the uh, the finals. Uh, after what hopefully will be a great match tomorrow between Morocco and and France. Um, and uh, other than that, I'm just uh, I'm just trying to coast into the end of the year. But we have one more show before the holidays, so we don't have to wish people happy holidays yet. Um, but we will thank our listeners. Um, you are what the show is all about. So please follow us, like us, share us, uh, give us feedback. Um, we really appreciate all the support we've been getting. So until next week, he's DP, I'm McGee, and we'll talk soon. Next